there, and welcome to Lady Justice, Women of the Court podcast. In the final episode of Season 2, the Lady Justices host a live remote podcast with Professor Charlie Oldfield's judicial drafting class at the University of Akron School of Law. Today, the Lady Justices discuss their past to becoming Supreme Court Justices, how being a justice influences their writing style, and the importance of writing judicial opinions in plain language. What's cool about a state Supreme Court is that you are announcing and clarifying and sometimes settling issues that have been unsettled for some period of time. It's a big responsibility, and how you say that matters. They also answer questions about highly sought-after clerkships with state Supreme Courts, share details about the hiring process, and discuss the qualities they look for when hiring a law clerk. The lightning round will focus on plans for summer vacations, role models who impacted how the lady justices carry themselves in the courtroom, and their funniest Zoom experiences. Finally, the lady justices open the floor for student questions. Enjoy today's episode and stay tuned for some exciting information about the season three opening of Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. Welcome to Lady Justice Women of the Court, a podcast ranked number nine on the list of top 30 court podcasts recently named over at feedspot.com. I'm Justice Beth Walker, the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia, and with me today, as always, are my friends Chief Justice Bridget McCormick of Michigan and Arkansas Justice Rhonda Wood. It's been a little while since we've been together, so let's start with a quick hello. Rhonda, what's new in Arkansas? Hi. Well, I, I totally forgot that we were going to have, like, an Ohio-Michigan, like, throwdown and that, you know, I'm, like, here moderating that, but... Soon in Arkansas, we handed down our last opinions for the term this morning. The other thing, Arkansas is in the semifinals of the baseball national championship. So if we win at three o'clock central today, then we are in the finals. So Arkansas, we're pretty excited for that. I just spoke at our Arkansas Association of Counties meeting, and they actually had the TV up in the room <laughs> because everyone's ready to watch that. But anyway, um, that's sort of what's new in Arkansas. What about you guys? How about you, Bridget? Gosh, so we I wish we were close to done with our court's term. We are not. Our term always finishes July 31st at midnight unless we get our work done earlier. That's not going to happen this year. There's been a lot. Uh, in addition to the regular cases, we've had an awful lot of election emergencies. I think there were 38 candidates who were thrown off the ballot in Michigan. We had a very busy May, late May and June, as you two might imagine, from that just that number. Also, like everywhere else, it's a redistricting year, but for the very first time this year, we had a independent redistricting commission. So the, you know, the first time through, you get a lot of new legal questions about how all that is going. So I think that's contributed to our very busy summer. We're going to be busy for, for the rest of the summer. Congratulations to the Ohio State. We're having fun with that on Twitter. Uh, go Blue. What's happening in West Virginia? Well, thank you for being gracious as always. For those of you who don't follow us on Twitter, we've had a long term. Although I uh, have spent my whole professional career in West Virginia, uh, I am a Buckeye um, from birth at heart. And so Bridget and I do go back and forth a little bit about the Ohio State, Michigan, about the Ohio State and Michigan thing. 
Um, but it's it's very friendly, and um, I'm just grateful that we actually have a football rivalry again. It was a long time coming, <laughs> and there we go. So what's new in West Virginia? Our Sine Die Day uh, was last Wednesday, and all of our opinions were released um, actually on Tuesday. We have two terms of court, January to June, and then September to November, so we have pretty finite timeframes and we stick to those deadlines and we routinely as we did this term issue opinions in every single case we hear during the term by the end by by our sine die day which i recognize i'm pronouncing that incorrectly but that's how we say it in west virginia is sine die so i'm going to stick with it um lots of other fun things going on we have a brand new justice finally another lady justice in west virginia and we have two of five our women, our new Justice Haley Bunn, joined us in May, and we are launching a brand new Intermediate Court of Appeals. We have been a one-step appellate state for a very, well, since we started, and we now will have that extra Intermediate Court of Appeals step. That uh, court starts, goes up and running on July 1. So lots happening in West Virginia, even though we are done with our term. So today, I'm excited that we are doing a live remote podcast. So we have a live audience via Teams, actually, which is fun for us. We have a lot of fun seeing each other, but it's also fun to know that people are actually listening. And so these students are being held hostage to our witty conversation, I guess. We are speaking to Professor Charlie Oldfield's judicial drafting class at the University of Akron School of Law. And this event came, apart, uh, came about as many great things do on our podcast by way of Twitter, where we're all friends or followers or whatever we call each other on Twitter now. When Professor Oldfield reached out to us a few months ago about speaking to his class, we were able to juggle schedules and make it work today. So good after, afternoon, everyone who's in the class. Uh, we can't see you, but we know you're there. And welcome to our live podcast. Our format is that we're going to discuss a few topics that our friend, the professor, has suggested, and then we will open up the floor for questions. So students, you have a little bit of time to come up with questions, but if you don't, keep in mind that two of us, as you heard in introductions a little bit ago, are experienced law professors and know how to call on people. So I know you'll probably come up with questions. So just to kick things off, Let's start with a little background information. And our first question, what was your path to being a justice on the court? And how do you think that influenced your current writing style? Bridget, will you start for us? I will. I love this question because I don't think I had ever thought about the connection between my background and my writing style. And probably there is one. So I think it's a smart question, Beth. Thanks for thinking of it. I was, as you heard, on the on the faculty at the U of M Law School very happily for 12, 13 years when I made a brash decision to run for statewide office and to everyone's surprise, including my own one. So my path was a little random. I, I did not set out to be a judge. I was very, a very happy lawyer. Um, even though teaching, I taught primarily clinics, clinical classes, and continued to lawyer happily in that context including in a lot of appellate courts and the Michigan Supreme Court. And so running for office was not something I spent a lot of time thinking about. And I think that was probably wise. If I had thought much more about it, I might never have done it. But I landed myself on the Michigan Supreme Court in 2013. And I think 
that my background as an appellate lawyer and an appellate teacher, I mean, my students were doing a lot of appellate brief writing, probably does have an influence on my writing style. I spent a lot of time with students trying to help them think about telling a story in a way that keeps the reader reading, like, you know, beyond the page three, and how to do it in clear language, in plain language. And so I think a lot of that carries through to my own opinion writing. I, I always, when I write an opinion, I try to imagine people reading it who are not lawyers. And, you know, it seems to me pretty important that everybody understands what the law is. And if we don't do a good job communicating it in language that people who didn't go to law school can understand, I feel like we haven't done a great job. And so and I, I feel like that was something I, I spent some time on in my last career and it's carried through. So I thought this was a fun question. But what about you, Beth? Well, um, thank you, Bridget. On this podcast, we've had a great time and we've had talked to different audiences and had some questions. So now it's challenging because I'm always trying to come up with something we haven't talked about before. So that's where that's where this one came from. And three of us have a lot in common. We're all, I'm sure we'll mention it at some point, first generation lawyers. But the one thing that I don't have in common with my friends is that I don't have an academic background. I didn't teach. I haven't yet. I'm, I'm sure I might at some point. I would probably enjoy it. Taught at law school or in um, higher education. So my background is all from private practice and being an in-house lawyer. And in that role, it's just a different background. It's not any better or worse. And I think, you know, we talk about this too. I think you have to have judges that come from everywhere. You know, you, you need to, everybody, diff if you have all the judges that came from the same background, we'd all come up with the same thing. And, and part of the wonder of our jobs is just the back and forth in discussing things. But I always worked a lot because I was a labor and employment lawyer with human resources folks who by and large are not lawyers. So a lot of my interaction day to day, in addition to jury trials, I didn't do a ton of appellate work as a lawyer. So it was all, it was some trial work, a lot of administrative hearings and working with non-lawyers. And that made me very practical. I was always looking for ways to sort of get to, you know, cut to the chase. And I, and I wasn't that enamored with showing off about how fancy my legal analysis was because my clients really didn't need that. It's not that they didn't care. They didn't need it and they might not understand it. And I didn't want it to cloud what I was trying to tell them was my advice. And so I was, I'm always, and I think it affects my writing style now because I do, I'm very practical. I like to start out opinions so that you can read the first paragraph or two and know exactly what the opinion's about. And I think we all work on that in different ways. And sometimes, of course, and we'll talk about this more, my law clerks have to say, you know, Beth, you need to do a little analysis here. And, and I say, yeah, you're right, um, because sometimes I'm a little too practical and a little too cut to the chase. But um, I definitely see how a very sort of practical legal background uh, influenced my writing style now. How about you, Rhonda? Yeah, so, yeah, this is a great question. I think probably what influenced me the most coming immediately to the Supreme Court was I'd been right before that two years on our intermediate court of appeals. And on our court of appeals, all we did really was we would have a case and we would look to say, what did the Arkansas Supreme Court say on it? And then we took that case and we applied it to the facts in front of us. And that was our job. 
And if there wasn't an Arkansas Supreme Court case on it, then we asked the Arkansas Supreme Court, would you take the case and make a decision and, and tell us what the, you know, the rule or the law is on that? And so doing that for two years and then going right to the Supreme Court, it made me very aware of making sure every opinion we had clearly said, if it's an issue of first impression, here's the parameters. Here's what we mean. Here's what we don't mean. And that we don't say more than we need to say. And that we sort of haven't opened it up wider than it is. And I think that that's not only impacts probably how I write, but probably how I edit my colleagues' opinions. So I definitely that experience right before coming in the Supreme Court made me view it not just writing about the decision in the case in front of us, but being very cognizant of how it's going to be used um, as precedent in the future. That's a really great point. And as we have a new intermediate court, I'm going to remember that because I think it is a, a brand new dynamic when you've got another uh, set of appellate judges who are going to be weighing in on things. So thanks. That was a great start. Now, I know that a lot of the folks in our audience are students who have their eyes on judicial clerkships. And I know I can speak for my friends when I say that clerkships in state Supreme Courts are by far the best experience, no matter what others may say, far and away. So let's start by discussing our law clerks. How many clerks do you have? What's your hiring process? And what do you look for when you hire clerks? And I'll kick this one off and say that first, I have four law clerks, which is a lot as other as when you compare it to other state Supreme Courts, we are a busy court. As I said, uh, we, we've been the only appellate court for a long time, and we handle a whole lot of cases. Our review is not discretionary. We take every single thing that comes in the door, and that just takes a lot of work. So I have four clerks. One of those is a term law clerk, somebody who does a two-year term and is a relatively recent law school graduate. And the other three right now are what we might call career clerks. That's how we get our done our work done right now. I've added just very recently, I'm in the process of adding an administrative clerk to kind of help keep the trains running on time. That person will also be a recent graduate. And I am the only, actually right now, the only one on our court of five justices total. You can see our beautiful courtroom in the background, Professor, that is for you, because I know you love our West Virginia courtroom. Um, I'm the only one who hires recent graduates. Everybody else has career clerks. And I am a big proponent in the educational component of our state Supreme Court and these positions. And I, you know, as we go forward, if any of my clerks ever get tired of me, which is possible, I will add more term clerks uh, as I can, because I think it's, it's really great um, to bring in new folks. It takes more time. It takes a little bit more training, and we'll probably talk about that. But in terms of what I'm looking for, because we have this team I am looking for folks who can be part of the team, who can get along with the folks who are here. And so actually my hiring process when we post is um, I allow my current clerks to screen the applicants. I say, I want to know who you all think would do well in this job. You do this job. And, you know, we have a very team oriented process. We collaborate a lot. You know, we don't sit in silos. We talk a lot on teams or in person. 
And so really they do a lot of the decision-making and you might think, well, you're abrogating, not at all. I just am very realistic, again, practical about who's going to succeed. And I think my folks know probably as well as I do, who's going to succeed. I make the final call. I meet with finalists uh, and figure out who would be a good fit. But that is my process in West Virginia, as I'm sure in the other states, it's a discretionary position with me. I don't have to go through the other justices uh, or anything like that. We each have our own uh, staff. So Rhonda, how's it work for you? So probably pretty similar in a sense. We have two law clerks. So I have an administrative assistant and then two clerks. Up until most recently, I always had one that was sort of permanent clerk and then one that rotated. And so, but I, I guess I feel like there's a base level that sort of you're competent enough. If you're going to get an interview, then you can do the job. And I have a lot of people that intern that probably I wouldn't clerk, but I give them that opportunity for that educational experience just to be help them um, while they're in law school. But if they make the interview stage, then they're competent enough. They interview with my whole staff with us. So there's four people in the office. So We'd be, we would be down to three when we're interviewing, and so they interview with all three of us. And at that stage, a lot of it is, you know, really how well you can fit in our environment. And when you're clerking, you know everything pretty much, I feel like, about my life. You, I have to be able to trust you, and I have to have a feeling that you can get the job done. And I want to have someone that's going to challenge me, that's not going to be a yes, yes, yes person that will push back and that I can have that conversation with. And so they'll come in. It may be in 10 minutes, I'll cut the interview and it's done because I know right then it's not going to work out. Usually the, if, if it's close, the interview will go an hour, hour and a half. Then we'll know, yeah, this is going to work pretty quickly that I can start getting a feel that this person is going to you know, be receptive to what I need. Um, and a clerk, and be willing to to challenge me, and that's the main thing I want is is I want someone to challenge me. So, Bridget, what about you? So I'm going to tell you all about me, but I have one more. I have a follow up question for Beth. I didn't want to interrupt you. Your admin clerk is that one of your four, or did you have a, do you now have a fifth clerk? So we have uh, my colleagues have an administrative assistant, and ah. at, at the at the current point. None of those folks hire a lawyer to do that. So I, as you know, have not had an administrative assistant and I've decided to bring in a lawyer, a brand new lawyer um, to that role. And so that is an additional clerk, but really um, they're going to, it's going to be in it. So it's a new, it's a brand new position. I was actually inspired by our friend in Texas, Eva Guzman, who had an administrative clerk and I decided to give it a try. So it's a new thing. Excellent. Okay, cool. So I have four clerks like Beth does. But I have sort of the the opposite of what she has. I have a senior permanent clerk who's been with me since I started. And then I have three term clerks and and they all serve two year terms. They they start with me in September and they stay for two years. I mean, I guess they could leave early, but they don't usually. And so every September I have somebody leaving and somebody coming in. So each year I'm looking for one new clerk, usually for two years out. You know, I'm hired for, I'm usually hired a couple of years out. And I I do the same that, that you do, Beth. I, my senior will do the first cut in a, in a set of applications and show me the ones he thinks I might want to look at pretty closely. And then I'll bring in a few, a few finalists. And I have them spend time with all of the clerks in the office. 
even the one who they might be replacing, just to have everybody be able to give me their sense of the candidate and the candidate get a good sense from each of them about the job. It can be a lonely job. I, I want to I echo what Beth started with, which is that I think the clerkships on state Supreme Courts are far and away the best clerkships. They really are. They're just, you get to do every kind of case, you know, courts of general jurisdiction are just super interesting and you're deciding important questions and you're the court of last resort. And so it's a, it's a, it's, I think the most exciting clerking job out there, but all clerking jobs can be a little lonely, right? It's a lot of time in your own head and time reading and writing. And um, you want to make sure that that's what somebody really wants to do because if they're going to come do it with me for two years, I'm I'm going to invest a lot of time in them, especially that first year, and uh, I I don't want them to be miserable. I want them to 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 love being there. So I figure if they have time with each of my clerks, they can ask all the hard questions that they might be embarrassed to ask in front of me, and maybe they'd still be embarrassed to ask them. But I don't think so. They, it's a little more comfortable, I think, to get real information about what the job entails. So that's about the process. Well, now we know who does the work in our offices, and now I want to shift over to how that work is done. And to start this this part of the conversation, I'll say that I'm sure that every judge works differently with clerks and how they use clerks and what the process is. And so I don't know that we've ever talked about this on the podcast. I don't remember doing it. This is a fun new question as well. And so I'm going to ask, and Rhonda, I'm going to have you go first because you have been both a trial judge and an appellate judge. But can you give our students an overview of how you work with your law clerks and maybe even how that's evolved uh, over over your time as a judge? Sure. And I'll say there, it's it's really different. The when I was on the trial court, the law clerk did a lot of docket management. That there are standards for how quickly cases need to be resolved, and so that clerk really was all about making sure that every case was moving through quickly and keeping track of when cases were filed, you know, doing scheduling orders, making sure cases were set for trial, and then really only researching complex motions and writing memos on complex motions, but really sort of managing the the trial docket and did a lot with jury instructions. That that was the other main area that my trial court law clerk worked on. At the, both at the Court of Appeals and Supreme Court, the clerks don't really do any management, you know, caseload or anything like that. They, the way they work is at our court, we get the cases four weeks before the court conferences the case and has argument. So we come up, they get, we get the case. My law clerks have, I'm trying to think, they have about 15 days. No, it's a little bit less than, less than two weeks. They have to write their memo on it and they write me a memo. I do my own research and I will come up with sort of where I think the case is. They've written their memo. I read their memo. And we all get together, all of us, and they present it to me. I kind of talk about it. It's more like hospitals, ground, grand rounds that they, they do with residents. So they will present the case with the other clerk being there. And then me and the other clerk who has not worked on the case, we will ask them all kinds of questions. And at that point, I will tell them I have agreed, or I will tell them that I think they're just completely wrong, or there may be different issues. And we just argue it sort of back and forth and we flip it around. If we're in agreement, you know, I may say, well, give me your best argument against why, why should we be wrong? Have the other law clerk argue. And then at that point, I'll say, we feel comfortable on the law. 
if we know, we will know at that point if we would be writing the majority, if we get the majority, then I'll say start drafting a majority opinion. If there are certain areas, I'll say, I need more research on this, or I need more research on this. I don't feel comfortable, and they will go back. There may be times where I'll say, you know, what I'm all about because of the trial court, what did the what did the third amended complaint? What did they actually ask for in the prayer for relief? And they get so mad when I ask them that because they've spent all this time on the law. <laughs> you know, I'm like, but did they actually ask that at the trial court? So I ask a lot of record questions. But anyway, we go back and forth. They usually draft the first opinion if it's majority opinion. I always draft my dissents and concurrences usually. Um, do the first draft of those. And then we just edit back and forth. We may go through 16 to 20 drafts of an opinion that we're highly editing before we send them to the court. We do a lot of drafting. I know that makes you cringe. The other thing, I think I've mentioned this before, we make each other, especially on certain opinions, we read each sentence out loud because I've been sort of burned by a sentence being lifted and taken completely the wrong way. So every sentence sort of making sure, especially in a dissent um, that's going to be published, that we read, we'll read each sentence out loud and make sure that if, it, if that's the sentence that's put published and gone kind of worldwide, that that sentence is not going to be misinterpreted. So we do that as well. I, I don't know if that helps you guys or not. <laughs> that's great. What about you, Bridget? My clerks work on I think of it as three different buckets of work. So they're and they're constantly working on each of those buckets. One is incoming applications for leave. My court is a 100% discretionary court. We decide our own docket. So we review in a given month 150 to 200 applications for leave, and those get divided by four. So each clerk has 25% of that number. And on each of those, they're going to be writing me a memo. And there's one day, one Friday in the month when all of those are due, but I'm reviewing them as we go along. And those are basically in a Dropbox account, in a Dropbox-like account where we can both look at each other, we can look at the work and I can make comments and ask further further questions if I have them and they can, but usually I they'll make a recommendation. I, you know, I think the court should deny leave because, you know, X, Y, and Z. And assuming I agree, I tell them I agree. And then we don't spend much time on that at all. The second bucket of work is preparing for conference. Our court conference is every Wednesday, unless we have oral arguments in a given week. But on at conference, we, we will have a list of cases that one or more justices felt like we should talk about at the table, that, that it was not an easy deny for all seven offices. Maybe it's the opposite of an easy deny for all seven offices, or it's, usually it's somewhere in between. You know, there might be two or three justices who see something that merits some conversation. Those cases take a little more work usually. And so the, the clerks, again, divide up the conference cases. In every given week, there might be 25 conference cases. And they need a big, a deeper dive. And they do prepare a memo in those as well. And they, they get those to me the Friday before conference. I review them every weekend. This is a bad habit. Figure out how I, how I don't have to put Saturday and Sunday into my regular work like rotation. But that's the habit that I've gotten in. I send them any and all feedback by the end of the weekend so that Monday we can, if we feel like we need to be circulating a memo to my colleagues about one of those cases or... We know we want to pass the case because we, we think we need to look at the record a little more closely, or I know I need them to do a lot more work. We have some time to do it. And then we have our follow-up conversations about it 
Monday and Tuesday. And then Wednesday after conference, I rally with the whole team and we talk about what happened in, you know, in the conference with all of those cases, what the follow-up work is. I always ask, who do I owe what to? What am I forgetting? And we, and we go from there. Then the final bucket are the cases that we are formally hearing at oral argument. And that, in those cases, obviously get the deepest dive of all. And we have oral arguments once a month, except for the summer months. And we usually hear 12 to 14 cases. So each clerk is preparing four, maybe five cases. And on those, we have a lot of individual back and forth as we as we get closer and closer to the argument. They do make an initial recommendation to me, and then we have a lot of back and forth before before the argument. If we draw the opinion, that clerk who prepared the, the memo for, for oral argument is the one who works on the opinion with me. I'm a lot like Rhonda. I do we do a lot of drafts. I'm a big believer in, call them crappy first drafts. I, I always feel terrible for the clerk who is sitting on something so long because she wants it to be perfect and doesn't want it to get it to me, you know, doesn't want to get it to me. And I always tell her like crappy first drafts are great because honestly, sometimes that's when I might see some of the bigger structural problems that they're kind of struggling with. And I'll think like, oh, wait a minute. I think actually we need this other section or we need to explain this other thing first or so I actually like to be in early, which does mean that we end up doing a lot more drafts. But I think that's part of what I give the clerks who give me an awful lot is the more we're intimately involved in a draft of something. And I do that with conference memos as well as draft opinions. I hope the more they learn. So I, it is a work intensive process. I hope it's helpful to them. How, how about you, Beth? So there's some that I do that's similar, and I don't want to be too repetitive. Like Bridget described, I kind of have two, I, instead of three buckets, I really have two types of cases that we're working on. One are, as I said, we're not discretionary, so we're not deciding whether to take appeals. We're deciding how they're going to be handled. So that first process, our conference process, you know, we split them all up. Everybody writes a memo. We don't normally discuss them verbally unless they're, because there's just a lot of them in, in that first sort of conference. And But if, some, if someone, they all know, and I trust them to flag, you know, ones, this one, you know, we have a, a group of lawyers, as I know my colleagues do in the court who look at things first, the office of counsel is what they're called for us. And they're, then they're sending them to us and then we're giving them an individual look. So this is sort of the second set of eyes. And we go back a lot with questions and say, you know, what is this? What do you think? And I really rely on them really heavily during that in that first sort of conference process where we're deciding and our court has two tracks. One is decide cases and what we call memorandum decisions without argument. And those are primarily decisions based on briefs and the record, or we bring them in onto one of our oral argument dockets. And so once we decide that a case is coming in on an oral argument docket, that's sort of the second category. Our cases are assigned before they're argued to an individual justice. So we will know if we are assigned to the majority opinion, assuming we stay in the majority. You know, our, and I, I know this is probably true in, in, with my friends, is, you know, about 90% of our, our decisions are 5-0. And so, you know, there's a good chance we're going to stay in the majority in a particular case. Sometimes they flip and then we handle that. But 
I like to have my clerks, whether we're preparing for cases assigned to us or other justices, do a memo. And we've gone through a whole process on how that memo can be most helpful, what I really need, the depth of review. Of course, that depth will be a little bit more if you're preparing to write the majority opinion. And then we also have a meeting where each of them present the cases that are coming for oral argument to each other. And I think it's just a nice way, first of all, for our term clerk to learn how to verbally, you know, to keep those verbal skills, but also for everybody else just to be able to present it. I think it's a good skill to continue to have, you know, again, as as we've talked about, these are jobs where you are spending a lot of time reading and by yourself and I think that interaction is good, it, it just just enjoyable, in addition to being necessary. You know, it's enjoyable to sit and talk about and have somebody shoot darts into a, a particular position or say, well, what about this case? Did you think of it? And, you know, with three career clerks, they're looking at our law all the time. And so they are even more conversant than I am in some of these minute issues, standard of review issues, um, you know, some of the kind of mundane procedural parts of our job, which I love, but it it may sound boring. And so we do a lot of that verbal back and forth, much like my colleagues. And so that's kind of a, a little glimpse. I don't want to repeat because I agree with some of the other observations about the value of working together and and drafts and and all of that, all that's important. And I want to shift us over before we get too far, too much further along over to writing style. We gave you a little preview of that at the beginning, but we all care a lot about the opinions we write being understood by the litigants, as well as being useful for the lawyers as a statement of the law in our state. That's what's cool about a state Supreme Court is that you are announcing and clarifying and sometimes settling issues that have been unsettled for some period of time. It's a big responsibility. And how you say that matters. And some of our opinions are not so glamorous and they're routine, but you know, those litigants deserve every bit of care and consideration, as do the ones who might be talked about in the newspaper. So I'm going to phrase this question in terms of how you describe your writing style to your law clerks when you are interviewing, training, mentoring, How do you describe how you want them to write? And so, Bridget, I'll let you lead this one on. So it's another great way to think about it. And I I have to confess that I'm not sure I have described my writing style to my law clerks. Uh, My senior clerk does make sure, most of them do this before they even come to an interview, but make sure they've read all of my opinions um, before they start drafting. And that gives them a pretty good sense. Although I would say Bridget 2022 is a much better writer than Bridget 2013. At least I I think she is. So I want them to start with the most recent ones and they can skim the older ones. But but when I'm working back and forth with them, I, I have fantastic law clerks, really, really smart, talented writers, talented researchers. It is unbelievable to me how overwritten so much of their their first drafts can be. And over by overwritten, I mean the extra words that are, I don't know, fancy words they learned in law school that don't add much to a sentence. And so, so our, our back and forth is always, you know, uh, the only thing I like better than a two-word sentence is a one-word sentence. So how are we going to make this sentence have fewer words? And how are we going to make uh, this 
section of the argument have fewer paragraphs? How can we say this more clearly? Uh, which can take a lot of extra work, actually. So I work really hard on clarity and plain English. Like I said before, I don't want to repeat myself. It, it, it does feel very important to me. I mean, I don't I don't wish it on anyone to have to, any citizen of the state of Michigan to have to read all of the opinions the Michigan Supreme Court issues in, in any given term. But I certainly want any citizen who is interested in reading all of the opinions that the Michigan Supreme Court issues, or at least all of mine, to be able to understand what they say and what they mean and what, as you as you put it, Beth, what the law is. It's only fair that people can understand clearly what it is, that, what the rules, what the rules of society are. So I, I work really hard on 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 clarity with with my clerks, but um, I have some other like little. I'm not sure how important these are. I'm I'm very anti footnote. I don't I don't think it makes sense to make people have to. And regular people are like, what is this? You know, if you send an opinion to to my dad, for example, he's like, what is with the? Why do I have to do this up and down to the footnotes? What is that about? It's so terrible. Like what? Why are you trying to confuse me? It feels like it's a trick we're playing on the citizenry when we use footnotes. When a law school, when a clerk starts a sentence with the word, however, they're immediately fired. I'm just kidding. No, they're not. But they know better. And I have a few little things like that, but those are less important. So what about what about you, Beth? So you're you're wanting to start it up on footnotes. So I am a citation and footnote girl. That's just how I am. I, I think I think the citations clutter up the text and make a mess. And you can just park them neatly in a footnote. And if someone cares enough to know what site in the Southeast Second this case is, they will be glad to look there. But anyway, I won't I won't respond any more than that on footnotes. I'm also a big plain language, a couple of little things I, I would add or describe is I do have a list of banned words. I'm a one-woman effort to try to remove some words from the vernacular of the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia. I'm not winning in any way, but I am trying to eliminate, eradicate. I need to use a strong word, eradicate the use of instant case because it makes me crazy. It's just this case. It's There's no nothing instant about it. And so my colleagues still use it. Sometimes it hurts to read their opinions. But we do, like many other courts, give great deference to each other when we're writing the majority opinion, as long as it's correct and, you know, it meets our standards of a statement of the law. We don't generally mess with each other's styles. I'm just trying to influence them by a good example, which is working a little bit. I don't like the big words. That's my 20 banned words, including instant case. I don't love moreovers and howevers and, you know, just I, I try to, I love Bridget's description of a, if a, a two-word sentence is fine and a one-word sentence is better. You know, they, you don't need that many words. And it's remarkable. I've had folks writing where it's beautiful. I mean, the legal analysis is pristine and spot on, but it's just, there's so many words. You just have to get some of those words out of the way so that your meaning can come through. Um, I am a big fan of Brian Garner, and he's really the first person I heard describe in early in my tenure that you're really writing for not necessarily lawyers. And I never really had thought about that because I was a lawyer, and I thought, well, we, who else is reading these? But when you're when you're the judge, you realize that there are parties and litigants and 
and they, I want them to be able to understand their case. Um, you know, t- complicated things, you know, I don't dumb them down, of course, tax matters, you know, very technical things sometimes they have to be very technical, but you can still explain them in a way I think that makes sense. It's, it's harder. It, and, you know, sometimes the parties are not speaking very clearly, but I certainly try to speak clearly in plain language. How about you, Rhonda? You want to weigh in on the footnote thing? Yeah. Well, so I'm the John Roberts of footnotes because I put them in the text, citations in the text in the majority opinion, because I think it goes back to this intermediate court of appeals experience that I feel like lawyers in the other courts, when they're reading a majority opinion, they want to be able to cite and find the law and find where, you know, the authority. But in a dissent, they always go in the footnotes because I feel like in the dissent, it clutters up my clear argument to why the court got it wrong. And so I want them just to be able to read, you know, me telling why the majority of my court is so clearly, um, you know, off the mark. And so I don't want to, you know, mess it up with like 432 Southwest 3rd, you know, whatever, 896 in the middle of my very persuasive argument, and especially if I'm trying to like flip a colleague. So um, so I'm a little bit of a mixed bag. I will say, I think a lot of, you know, this goes back to teaching that if you think about like an essay exam at law school, they would give you like all these crazy facts and then you'd have to like pick, you know, certain facts and like spot issues, right? And then you'd write this, you know, exam answer and, but you didn't use all of the facts, right? In this crazy fact pattern, you just pulled which one's out. And so the same thing is when we're writing an opinion, don't put all those facts in there that are relevant. We only want the ones that are relevant to the issue that's in front of us. I say, if you're, you know, my clerks, a new clerk, we'll write a bunch of facts. And I say, if you can't find that fact in the analysis, then go back and like, take it out of the fact section like it's gone you know unless you need like that one little you know two or three sentence to explain you know who who the main characters are in our story or whatever but other than that if you're if you don't need that fact you know to explain why we got there didn't get rid of it like i don't want to know i don't it who cares if the murder happened on january 1st 1982 unless it's relevant that's 30 years later, they're asking for new scientific evidence um, and testing, right? Or something like that. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. Do not give me dates. So anyway, that's, I'm sorry, I got off, you know, I get very upset about poor writing. Not that I'm an expert, but, you know, clear, simple, concise. Wow, wait, we don't often see Rhonda get that wound up. And she, I get she very is, emotional. I get very emotional. Very, about she is very passionate about this. So, so thank you. And, and and hopefully the students can see that, you know, this is not just sort of a, you know, something we do and we're political. I mean, we care a lot about this, at least the three of us do. And I know many, many of our colleagues do. We put a lot of time and thought in, in into it and we do embrace our nerdness happily, actually. And so now it is time for our lightning round. This is a part of the podcast where we give quick answers to questions that may or may not have anything to do with our work or today's topic. And we will answer them today as we often do in alphabetical state order, Arkansas, Michigan, and West Virginia. Question number one, do you have a summer vacation planned and what is it? Yes, Alaska. Whoa, really? That's so cool. Yes, do you wanna come? Yeah, I do. (laughs) 
I don't really have a um, vacation exactly, but that's because summer in Michigan is amazing and everybody probably wants to vacation here. So we are hoping to do a lot of biking in Western and Northern Michigan, but no, no out of state vacation planned. So we are going to take a little river cruise from Amsterdam to Budapest. So that should be really cool. Our second question is, who is a judge or justice, past or present, whose writing you admire or try to emulate? I, I love that I get to go first. I would say Justice Elena Kagan. I think she's one of the best writers um, on the Supreme Court. Well, I wanted to go first to say Justice Elena Kagan. <laughs> uh, Justice Scalia was a fantastic writer as well, in my view. But I think right now, uh, Justice Kagan's writing is the most engaging, the clearest, and the writing I like the best. And so my answer is the same. I don't think we've ever answered this question before. But just for a little variety, I will point out that I do, I am inspired by Justice Thomas, who in all of his years on the court, agree or disagree with him, has stuck to positions that he believes in and isn't afraid to be, you know, a justice of one in certain dissents. And and sometimes when you believe, you know, that something is incorrect, as Rhonda was explaining a minute ago, you just have to stick with it. And so I also admire his persistence. Question three. How do you answer your telephone at the office? Do we even get calls at the office anymore? I don't even know. And is it the same as how you answer your cell phone? Yeah, so mine, if I answered my phone at my office, assuming it rang ever, I don't answer it because if it's ringing, it's spam because um, nobody calls me at the office. But I just say hello. Same thing on my cell. <laughs> yeah, nobody... I. I'm, I anybody who's calling my office is not calling my direct number. So I am unlikely to be the person answering the call. If it's getting transferred to the phone that's in my office, somebody else has already answered it and told me who's, who they're sending over. So it's a, it's a pretty informal answer. And my cell phone always tells me who's calling. And so it depends who's calling, how I answer it. And if you need to know more, we can talk more. But but if I don't know who's calling, if it's just a number, I don't answer it. I wait and figure out later who it is. Those are all good tips. I, you know, for many years answered the phone with my name and I stuck to that for a long time, even on cell phone, but it got to be kind of ridiculous because you can see who's calling. Um, no one does call my office anymore. Although occasionally I'll answer just to, just to throw somebody off and I will say my name, but normally it's just uh, hello. Sometimes my name depends on if it's someone very official calling. Sometimes I'll, I'll say my name. Okay, so our last lightning round question. What is the funniest or most memorable thing you've witnessed either ever or recently during a Zoom meeting? Yeah, so I don't have, the only th thing I have is I just had one of those where I had like a green screen behind me at my home and um, I was doing like a live TV interview and my dogs came up behind it and started like knocking it behind me. So I was trying to like maintain composure live on TV and I'm like two hands holding the thing the whole contraption's falling over one dog's jumping in my lap and I'm just trying to like maintain any kind of sense of composure and the whole thing's like falling over behind me and then they're seeing my office half in the background half the virtual half who knows what but 
uh, no funny experience, just, you know, a really uncomfortable and a, I guess a test to can I maintain composure or not? I, I, I don't have any great, I think so many of the trial judges have like wonderful Zoom stories and so that they'll have better answers. I have to say, I've kind of enjoyed all the like pets and kids that I've seen in people's, you know, backgrounds and foregrounds. And that's, that's been one of the upsides of, of a long couple of years. And I don't know, it's been, I think the Michigan Supreme Court was doing Zoom arguments maybe longer than West Virginia, although not Arkansas, you guys were in Zoom arguments for a long time as well, I think. And I was somewhat shocked that, you know, a good year and a half into it, I was still walking certain lawyers of a certain age and a certain gender through how to unmute themselves, how to turn their camera on. And I got, I, 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 I've gotten so good at it. And I would just say like, okay, so in the bottom left-hand corner, and we're live streaming it, you know, it's like in the bottom left-hand corner, there is a little thing that looks like a microphone, click on that little thing, you know, and then I would just talk them through it really. And the, and the other um, justices on my court, the women justices would be texting me like, you know, laughing emojis. So sometimes the funniest thing was just, how are you not able to do this two years into this? Come on. Somebody does everything for you. Is that what's going on? Anyway, yeah. An excellent point. We did only do Zoom, uh, quote, Zoom arguments for a short time. And the one that I remember is one of our justices. Of course, we're all using backgrounds. And one of our justices was recused from a case. And so he had stepped away. And I don't remember if it was in the transition to the next case or whatever, but he came close enough to the camera that he was back in view and he was eating a piece of cake. And it was hilarious because it went out on live stream. And he's the kind of per like I would just laugh at that if I did it myself or the time that my cat appeared on the live stream. But he is would be so concerned about that that it was really actually hilarious. And there were some judges that got screenshots of it and may or may not have made memes out of it. So there we go. Let them eat cake. And so now, at this point, I will turn it over to Professor Oldfield and see if you all have any questions. I know we've come close to our committed hour, but we'd love to get a question or two. I did successfully unmute myself. Well so. done. It's that little <laughs> microphone button. I got it. So thank you um, all so much for joining us today. And we do want to be respectful of your time, but I appreciate that you're willing to take some questions. So I'll ask you to come up and use the handheld microphone so that it's recorded well and give your name and ask your question. So who's going to go? Hi, my name is Jared. I'm a 3L here at Akron. And thank you for taking the time out of your probably very busy schedules to speak with us too. My question was, I know you all talked about Elena Kagan's writing style and how you admired it. I was wondering if growing up as first generation attorneys and starting off your career, if there were any role models who really impacted how you either carried yourself in the courtroom or just your daily life. Great question. Who wants to start? I'll just start. I mean, female role models, there weren't any in Arkansas. I'll just be honest. Finally, the year I graduated law school was the year Arkansas had the first, I think, female justice. And and, and she, she ended up not, I mean, she served, but she ended up leaving her term early in her second term. And just for, you know, mental health and in the issues and she went on and has done remarkable things, but there, there weren't, there weren't role models. What about you guys? I'll just say that, and I know we've talked about this before a lot of, you know, we've talked about 
I had a lot of role models who were men because it was mostly men. I mean, still the legal profession is still, as we sit here, you know, in the year of our Lord, 2022, one third women only, you know, in terms of practicing law. So they're just, and I think you find your mentors where you find your mentors and you can still be inspired by someone of another gender. And I guess I never thought of myself as a woman lawyer. I just was trying to be a great lawyer. What about you, Bridget? Yeah, I think we've talked about this before. I had the same experience. I mean, we're of a similar generation and there were not a lot of women lawyers in the in the places I was practicing. Uh, not none, but overwhelmingly men. And I feel very grateful that I had a lot of male mentors, faculty members, and then supervisors and colleagues who took an interest in my career and wanted to see me succeed. And I feel I feel grateful to all of them. But they were primarily male mentors, I, and they, they deserve a lot of credit. And in addition to still there not being a similar number of women practicing law as men, it's even starker at the leadership level. So the leadership level it's a little better in public service than it is in, you know, private practice and in, in, in big law and in GC roles, but it's certainly not equal. So there's a lot of growing yet to do. Hi, my name is Chris. I'm part-time 4L, so it's my last year here. I just had a question about, I forget who brought it up, but somebody brought up if you're reading a clerk's draft and you just say you don't feel comfortable. And I was wondering keeping keeping tools like Westlaw and, and Lexis in mind, at what point do you consider like a, a memo or, or a draft that you're comfortable with? How how can you be like 100% confident or, or have very little doubt when you're reading something? I mean, for me, it's, it, I don't think there's a simple answer because it depends on the issue and the law clerk. And, you know, at this point, my senior clerk who's been with me for so long and was with the court even for four years before I got there, my comfort level with his work is very high very early, which isn't to say that we don't have some back, some drafts between us we do, but not nearly as many as, you know, the newest clerk. And the newest clerk, it'll, it'll take a little bit longer. But I think it's pretty issue slash memo slash clerk dependent for me. And the only thing I would add to that is um, I also trust, you know, the process, you know, you have to trust your folks and, you know, you hire people you believe are going to do a great job and be thorough. But once these opinions start circulating to all of the law clerks of all of my colleagues, I just, I just trust that folks are, are, are drilling down on this. You know, we have with five of us, you know, 20 law clerks, and that's just a lot of legal horsepower for lack of a better word. And um, I do trust that and, you know, we're going to find it. And I do expect my clerks, I, I sort of goes without saying that they're not, that they're not going to miss something. Do, have, has the court ever missed something? Of course. It's never perfect. Rhonda, what would you add? Yeah, I'll just say that, you know, I'm doing my own research and reading the case on my own, especially, you know, a case that we're conferencing, doing a full opinion, first impression issue. Nothing's worse than to have your judge find a case that you missed and the parties missed. And so, I mean, that really pushes your clerks because when they come into that conference with me, if I've found something in the record or, you know, found something, a case that they missed, I mean, they want to do well and they want, you know, us to get it right. And, you know, they want to 
have my best interest at heart, but they have the state of Arkansas's best interest at heart, and they want the court, you know, to do well. And so there's a lot of motivation for, you know, everyone to make sure that that the ultimate decision is correct on the law. We have time for one more question. Sure. Are you guys good for one more? One more. All right. Last question. My name is John. I'm a 3L. Every speaker that we've had has talked about plain language in decisions and publicly accessible judicial writing. I feel like a lot of the case law that we that we read in our first and second year at law school is the exact opposite of that. And do you think that that might be influencing the direction that legal writing is going in current students today? Well, I'll start and just say real quick that, you know, I think I, I think that's a fair point, but um, I think you need, you know, I think, I hope that students are reading more recent opinions as well. And I know there are those tried and true false graph cases that are always going to be read, but I'm hopeful that, you know, good professors like Professor Oakfield are also showing kind of the trends. And I'll just say one pet peeve, and this is, you know, part of plain language, you have to be careful. I'm not a big fan of the justices trying to be funny and topical and pop culture references. I think that's going too far into trying to connect with your reader. I think, I think you have to stop short of that, but I'll let the others talk. Yeah, I actually completely agree with that. that there's, there's a, there's definitely a line that feels not not serious uh, when it's when it's crossed. But I agree with the question that a lot of what you read in law school is somewhat inaccessible, and that's too bad. But that is the way the law was for a long time. I I do think there are more than a lady justice attempt to make writing clearer and simpler. I think a lot of judges are trying harder at that. We teach it in our judicial education classes. And like my colleagues, I try and like Beth and Rhonda, I, I work on it with, with my colleagues' opinions, not always with success, but we're, we're, we're working on it. Well, there we go. And so let me just say that is a wrap in the end of this episode of Lady Justice, Women of the Court. We want to thank Professor Oldfield and your whole class for this wonderful invitation and the opportunity to do another live podcast, which which we really love to do. For our listeners, we'll be back again soon. But in the meantime, please follow all of us and the podcast on social media and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcast app. And there we go. Thanks for listening to Lady Justice, Women of the Court. Stay tuned for the season three opening episode with special guest, Chief Judge Jeffrey Sutton from the U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Chief Judge Sutton is the author of the nationally acclaimed book, 51 Imperfect Solutions, States and the Making of American Constitutional Law. Season three of Lady Justice launches Friday, September 16th in honor of Constitution Day. To learn more about this podcast, access past episodes, or find links to our social media, visit ladyjusticepod.com. You can also record a voice message with a question or comment. Subscribe to Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast for some exciting teaser trailers coming up in the next few weeks leading up to the season three premiere of Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. Remember, the opinions expressed on the program are the justices alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective courts. Until next time.